This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and my good friend Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, brother? How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. Um, sorry, guys, for not releasing an episode last week. Just the so much shit's going on. Um, a lot of like personal stuff is going on between both of us. Um, not beef or anything, but both of us. <laughs> yeah, the have way you make own. it sound yeah, like like we're like we're feuding or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that came off the wrong way. Both of us are busy, <laughs> have been busy in our in our personal lives, so we had to um, make time to, and and uh, you know take an episode off. But we're back, and the good news is, is since the past two weeks, since we last released an episode, there's been no nuclear war. Yep, we're still alive. We're still alive. Are you, um, so I, I have family members, my sister, my brother-in-law, they're seriously prepping. Really? Seriously prepping. They what just they got a, they have, um, they're basically building a bomb shelter. They're getting years and years worth of food and water, um, they're in a pretty rural area right now. Mm-hmm. They're preparing for all-out war. They're turning into the gummers from Tremors. Um, I don't think you know that reference because I, tr- I tried it on you before. But no. they're they're basically turning into the gummers. And, um, you know, they're giving me, like, survival advice. They're like, make sure that you get a uh, walkie-talkie with your fiancé in case anything happens. The phone Do you got a go bag? <laughs> You have, yeah, you have your go bat. Did you look at routes to escape the city? <laughs> they, like your your subway tunnels are going to be your best friend because my sister used to live in the city. Right now, um, for me, I'm tempted to do it. I'm tempted to start prepping seriously. Like I, I've actually gone. Um, they've sent me YouTube channels of uh, of these prepper guys. One of them is from New York. His name is the Angry Prepper, mm-hmm. or he used to live in New York. And the only reason why I don't start prepping, because I am concerned. It's not that I'm not concerned. Every single day I wake up, I'm like, hmm, wonder if it's going to happen. Um, to the point where when I'm like waking up and it's a bad day and I don't feel like doing something, I'm like, man, I would just, just do it. <laughs> just, <laughs> just start blasting these things so I don't have to get up and do what I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no chance living in New York that you're going to survive a nuclear war. There's absolutely no chance. Right. You're going to die. <laughs> I'm going to die. There's, there's no point. There's no point trying to map out your, your exit from an all-out nuclear war when you're in the biggest population center 
and probably most likely the, the primary belligerent of that nuclear war, you're just not going to survive. So why waste money prepping when you can just spend that money on, um, you know, the Good off shit. chance or the better chance that there won't be a nuclear war? Because I still think it's a better chance there won't be. Right. But I don't know. I'm at, at I'm at around ten percent now. That's that's my uh, nuclear war internal rating for whatever that's like, worth. Uh, you're at like less than one o'clock. It's like you know, twelve thirty, twelve forty five for you for the nuclear yeah. uh, doomsday clock. My doomsday clock is is um, has increased since we started this show, to say the very least. Now. My thought actually lies with you because okay. I'm a goner. I'm a goner if there's a nuclear war. But I was thinking about like, well, you know, a place that probably won't, that that would survive if there is a place would be Puerto Rico. Because Puerto yep. Rico, I mean, you're surprisingly kind of far from everything. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, how far is Puerto Rico from the coast of Florida? Oh, geez. I don't know. I'm going to Google like it right now. 300 miles. Miami to let's just do it for Miami to Puerto Rico miles. The San Juan. It's a, it's a thousand fourteen miles. Whoa, I was way off. Three hundred miles. Yeah, I guess what. Yeah. Cuba's only ninety is, miles off. So. Yeah. Okay, I was way off. It's pretty far. But then I was thinking, like, all right, so the continental America is destroyed. We all die. And, uh, you know, whether we're in a blast radius or, um, you know, whether we turn into mutant freaks, <laughs> Danny's going to probably maybe live. And I was happy oh. about that. I was like, Danny, Danny and Walsh are going to survive this. I'm, I'm happy about I'm happy about that. But then yeah. I started thinking about the weird life that you would be living after after a nuclear holocaust, because it would be it would really be weird. weird. I'm assuming if you're on Puerto Rico, most of the world has been destroyed. Uh, you know, maybe there's a few islands here and there. Maybe there's some, you know, other uh, parts of the continental world that haven't been destroyed. You have to remake society. And I was like, I wonder how Danny would do. I wonder what Danny would do. Well, that's <laughs> or an interesting be, theory. Yeah. It could be like The Beach. You ever read the book, The Beach? No. It's an Australian book. It's um about a nuclear war that happens and then the last survivors are in australia and there's a countdown they all know they're actually going to die from radiation poisoning so Mm -hmm. they're all just like anticipating their death and Mm -hmm. um that's that's the that's the the book they're just these australians who are anticipating their death from the nuclear fallout and at the very last days of their lives they have like this huge huge party where everyone starts doing things like you know, um, race car, like really deadly race car r- racing and, you know, just, you know, uh, really dangerous uh, bucket list type things. And, and that's how it ends. Everyone dies. It's a very depressing book. So I was like, maybe it will be kind of like like that in Puerto Rico, which I wouldn't want you to go through. I'm actually kind of happy if there's a nuclear war and I'm gone right away because I don't <laughs> yeah, think I would have to deal, deal with, with the, the stress <laughs> of something like that. Like, for example, if I was ever in a zombie apocalypse, I think I would just immediately let zombies eat me. I would just be like, I don't want to deal with that. Like, I don't want to go through the stress of living <laughs> in a zombie apocalypse. 
I'm just going to give myself up to the zombies right now and just have it be painless. Oh, I wouldn't so call that's, it That's painless. my mentality. I'm probably better off shooting I'm not yourself. a survivalist. <laughs> You're just going to let it happen. I mean, look, this is interesting because, you know, when you when you asked me this earlier, I actually went on um, Nuke Map, which we've actually, uh, like, played with on the show live when we did one of our live streams a long time ago. And I, I was just like, all right, well, what's the closest major city, you know, in the continental U.S. to uh, Puerto Rico? And that's Miami. And I just basically dropped a czar bomba like the biggest one possible on miami and there's a bunch of cool little filters that you can do you know including like where's the nuclear fallout and it'll show you like where where all that nuclear stuff will go and it's nowhere near puerto rico so you know uh, unless if, if this is like major nuclear war like nuclear winter then i'm gonna be okay in the beginning because i'm not gonna get bombed and I'm not going to get any immediate nuclear fallout. But it is an island and it is prone to crazy fucking weather. So what would probably happen is ridiculous weather events. It might not happen immediately, uh, but it certainly would happen after a while with all the nuclear fallout. Things will get colder, you know. Uh, who knows how shit will happen. My girlfriend, I told my girlfriend about this and she was like, well, what about tsunamis? And I don't, I don't necessarily know that nuclear bombs would create tsunamis large enough to reach Puerto Rico or cause any any harm in that respect, but it wouldn't be good. And, you know, Puerto Rico is very, very dependent on the United States for literally everything. Um, so, you know, we'd run out of food probably pretty quickly. Um, power goes out all the time in Puerto Rico anyway, so that'll probably happen, and it'll be totally unrelated to nuclear war. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, supplies would run. It just happen to be real out quick, and then people will start getting gum. real crazy. Getting real crazy. Maybe I should prep. <laughs> yeah, you you should be the one who's uh, investing in prep. And uh, that came out funny, prep. Um, but um, but you should be the one who's investing in, in prepping because you have a fighting chance not to die, and most likely you're gonna live in like Mad Max scenario. Yep. Where like all of society starts, uh, you know, going to war with each other for the remaining resources. You're gonna have to buy an off-road vehicle and like I don't know, a gun or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have to get some sweet camo to survive in those uh, Puerto Rican rainforest. I know, I know. Man, that'd be a good book. If someone wants to write a post-apocalyptic book. I think that would be the the setting of a of a good like nuclear fallout. Book. Um, there's a, there's a there's a really good book called uh, Metro 2030. It's a Russian book about a nuclear war that happens, and it's about the survivors who live in the subway system. Hmm. An, I would encourage people to check it out. It's pretty good. They made a video game after it as well. But um, okay, a, you want to start talking here's another, about? Here's another last thing oh. on that. Maybe preppers should think about moving to Puerto Rico. Right. Think about it. We've already Maybe talked about like, the tax benefits, right? Yeah. Now you have some shielding from nuclear winter. Think about that. You should tell your sister well, and your brother-in-law to consider a vacation home in Puerto Rico. <laughs> well, you already get like these crazy crypto millionaires moving there. Yep. Maybe they're but all just I think, afraid of doomsdays, right? <laughs> well, I Maybe think a lot of the, the, the crazy preppers, they're, they're priced out of the Puerto Rican real estate because the, you know, it's such a, it's such a desirable place to live right now. 
Hey man, yeah, I'm able to afford it. I think they should have a second look. <laughs> oh, okay, well. Maybe, I'm not a crypto maybe. millionaire, man. I do well, but not that well. <laughs> well, a lot of these uh, preppers, they, they want space. And it's hard to get space on an island. Dude, you'd be surprised. It's hard to get space on an island and there not is be so Pablo much, Escobar. There is so much like random empty plots of land in the middle of nowhere, Puerto Rico, where you can go and do whatever the fuck you want. It's pretty crazy. And it's cheap. Like land. It's pretty cheap. So preppers, check out Puerto Rico. I promise. It's interesting. Well, maybe 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 the war will start when I'm there in a couple of weeks. Oh god, let's not put that into the universe. <laughs> yeah. Um they'll be stuck with me forever until until uh you know, I get uh my like head chopped off from a from a 12-year-old child warrior. All right, let's start this show. All right. So we want to talk about, well, I wanted to talk about missiles today, and the truth is I really don't know that much about them. I can barely tell you the difference between a ballistic missile and a cruise missile, and there's just so much footage going on, or there's so much footage available now of just these cruise missiles zipping ra- zipping by the Ukrainian landscape, and it's just pretty crazy because I've never really seen this type of war footage before in my life. Just frequent cruise missiles flying around. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk to you about it because you're much better than on this stuff than I am, and and I really just wanted to, you know, pick your brain and, and honestly just get educated on it, sure. um, and 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 hear about you know what's going on, what what are the ammunitions of of uh, of the Ukrainians and the Russians. Um, you know what what models are these missiles because you know i'll watch videos on on twitter and telegram and people will be like oh this is a you know a t-140 h-72 cruise missile (laughs) and when i look at these videos i'm just like i don't really even know what i'm looking at Mm -hmm. i just see like a almost a plane flying to a target flying somewhere yep um so yeah there it is um Let's let's talk missiles. Sure, man. And and honestly, you're right in kind of being astounded by the use of, you know, these ballistic missiles in this in this current conflict, because, you know, as I've learned uh, in researching this, we there have been more missiles, you know, launched specifically, um, you know, ballistic missiles since the ballistic not cruise missiles. Well, they kind of all fall in the same category. We'll, we'll talk more about them in a minute, but. Just more missiles have been, ballistic missiles have been used in this conflict that since like World War II. And who knows? I mean, we might surpass it, but you know, World War II was crazy as hell. So I'm not, not hoping for it. Let's just put it that way. But you know, your idea of kind of talking about this has really given me, you know, uh, a rabbit hole to follow. And it was kind of hard. Uh, I'm staring at like 60 pages of notes, which is more than I've ever <laughs> that I think I've ever put together and it was way too much uh, so I really want to kind of narrow it down um, to a couple of things so I definitely want to talk about the use of missiles in Ukraine and help you understand some of the more common ones you know how they're being used who are using them things like that but I also want to talk a little bit about the international missile treaty uh, that we pulled out of under the Trump administration uh, and kind of talk about how that might 
have been uh, one of the bigger events that, that kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, uh, on Russia's part. Uh, and if we have some time, I'd love to uh, talk about how you know medium range rockets could change the dynamic of warfare. And also, a little pet project of mine, the use of drones, specifically loitering munitions drones. So hopefully we have time to get to that, but uh, got a lot of stuff on that too. Does that sound like a good plan? Yeah, let's start. Let's do it. Cool. All right. So I'm let's sold. Talk, yeah, let's let's talk missiles, right? Um, in Ukraine. So during the first couple hours of the invasion, uh, Russia used cruise missiles and a lot of precision short-range ballistic missiles or SRBMs, uh, like extensively. Uh, during this campaign against Ukraine. And according to U.S. estimates, the first wave included more than 100 missiles launched from land and sea. So it's just like a fucking lot of missiles in the first couple hours. Do you you think it's worth just like describing the difference between a ballistic missile and a cruise missile real quick? I mean, all cruise missiles. All cruise missiles are ballistic missiles, right? Ballistic missile is just a, a missile, right? Uh, it's the big umbrella, whereas a cruise missile is a specific type of ballistic missile. That's really all you need to know about the differences. But but a cruise a, a cruise missile is usually guided to hit a target, and then all it, all missiles are guided to hit a target. Well, but, but a ballistic but the different. But what I'm trying to say is that there's some missiles that are being shot up into the air, and then they're using gravity to land on a specific target. Almost all of them do that, but I think what you're trying the the differentiation that you're trying to do is like cruise missiles often fly pretty horizontally, like a low arc, versus a yeah, intercontinental ballistic missile that you're thinking about, which goes like super high into like basically space and then drops on uh, a a target. Um, but generally speaking, all missiles are all of those missiles are considered ballistic missiles, whereas cruise missiles are kind of the ones that look like planes, the ones that you were uh, talking about. And I'm not going to get into hypersonic missiles today because we already did a full episode on that. So if you want to listen more about hypersonics, you can check that episode out. Um, anyhow, uh, so where was I? Okay, so the latest figures um, from a senior U.S. official on April 29th claimed that Russia has launched so far 1,950 missiles. So that's, interestingly, more than double the the cruise missiles that were used um, in the invasion of Iraq in 2003, where they used 955 cruise missile strikes. So huge, huge, huge increase, just so many goddamn missiles. And, you know, there's just so many different types of them that were being used. And and there's a very wide variety, you know, from short range to long range, air, ground and sea launched, you know, smart ones, dumb ones, hypersonic ones, pretty much everything but nuclear armed missiles have been used in this conflict. And I definitely don't think that we have time to go over all of them, but we can talk about a few of the popular ones right now. Um, so the first one I want to talk about is the Iskander M. Uh, so some stats about this particular missile. Uh, it's a road mobile short uh, short range uh, ballistic missile or an SRBM. Uh, it has a range of about 500 kilometers. Now that range is going to be super important uh, for later. So remember that part. Uh, it sits on a, a transporter erector launcher, <laughs> which is kind of a funny way to say a big ass truck that carries missiles 
So they, you know, park the truck, lift up the bed to fire the missiles. So you've definitely seen what these look like. They're like a long truck. And those trucks can also fire cruise missiles, but I'm, I don't want to confuse you. They're launchers. Um, so specifically, this Iskander launcher has basically this big old armor cover on the top of it for the missiles to keep them safe. And also the cabin is super safe. It has defenses against chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear hazards. Well, that's called CBRN defense. Also has pretty good uh, extreme temperature protection because, you know, those fuckers drive around in like Siberia and shit. Um, the launcher can basically drive off-road. It's a good off-roader and it has, you know, it can go as fast as like 43 miles an hour uh, for like almost 700 miles. It's got pretty good range and it can move around a lot. So it's, it's a very mobile uh, platform. And the Iskander is actually fairly accurate. And this is a word that we're going to talk about again. You don't have to remember the actual name of it, but it's circular error probable or CEP. And basically what this means is half of the projectiles fired will land statistically in a circle uh, of five to seven meters, right? So basically the, the margin of error, right? If you try to shoot something, it's going to hit somewhere between five and seven meters of that thing that you're aiming for, which is pretty good when you think about how far those things shoot, right? I'm going to shoot something 500 kilometers away and I'm going to get within five to seven meters. That's pretty damn good, if you ask me. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's, uh, it's pretty surgical as mm -hmm. what they say. Right. Mm -hmm. And they, and they're very well guided, right? They use a, a number of like inertial and, and other sensors to get them to where they need, where they need to be. Okay. And these are Russian missiles, Russian missiles, Russian missiles. Okay. All right. Let's talk about a, another one here. The OTR 21 Tochka. And that's and that's the one that bombed uh, the train station a few weeks ago, right? Yeah, but I got to be careful about this one because it's a super hot topic. Um, so there's a lot of variants on the Tachka, and it's been around for a while, and it's also used by a shit ton of countries. So let's just do some basic stuff before we get into dicey territory. Um, the Tachka is a road mobile, you know, SRBM, just like the Iskander. Uh, there are a ton of different variants with different ranges and speeds, but the top range ones uh, are around 115 miles or 185 kilometers uh, of distance. They also sit on that truck that we were talking about. They also have CBRN defense, so against like chemicals and radiation, nuclear stuff. Also, this one's totally amphibious, so it, it can drive you know through water and stuff. Uh, and it has a maximum road speed of about 37 miles an hour and about five miles an hour in water. But it's not incredibly accurate. So the CEB uh, that we were talking about before of this particular weapon is around 70 meters, um, which for, you know, imperialist here, that's 229 feet. That's like a football field, right? So the thing, you know, sh can shoot something 185 kilometers away, but, you know, it's going to hit somewhere in the neighborhood of a football field. <laughs> so not super accurate. Okay. So you're talking about, you know, uh, um, between the one and gotcha, a little bit less than a football field. Mm -hmm. um, so you would, you would not call that surgical. 
Not exactly. No, not exactly. Now, Ukraine More has a blunt hammer. Uh, well, I mean, it's better than it's better than a lot of things, right? It's it's not a totally dumb weapon, right? It is guided, you know, with inertial sensors, but it's just not super reliable in that respect. Like you, you launch a lot of these at a big target to just like overwhelm. It's not like I want to hit you, and it's not like fuck you in particular. <laughs> you know, it's just hit somewhere in the general neighborhood. Um, and Ukraine has a, has a limited supply of these missiles, uh, but in the first days of the war, at least one was used to uh, attack a Russian airbase inside of Russia. Um, but it's been used a lot of times, right? Uh, a lot of countries have fielded this mission in various conflicts. So in 94, the Yemeni government used the Tachka missiles against the southern forces during the 94 Yemen civil war. Um, in 99, Russia used the missiles in the Second Chechen War. Uh, at least 15 Tachka missiles were deployed by Russia uh, in 2008 uh, during the South Ossetia War. Uh, in the Syrian army uh, used them on several occasions between 2016 and 2018, and they mostly fired them against rebel groups. Notably, there was one interesting occasion where uh, it was on the on 23rd July, uh, the Syrian army fired two Tachka missiles kind of near the Israeli border. And initially, they the Israeli defense forces thought that it was going to go into Israel, kind of near the Sea of Galilee. So the IDF basically fired two like interceptors at them. Uh, and a couple you know seconds later, they realized, oh shit, it's actually going to hit within Syria. So they blew one up over Israel. But the other one, the other interceptor actually fell inside of, of Syria. Um, interestingly, though, that one Tachka missile landed a kilometer outside of um, Israel or like inside of Syria. So it came real fucking close to going to Israel. So that was an interesting uh, little tidbit of information that I learned about that. Um, but moving on, it, it's also been used by the Houthis uh, during the current Yemeni civil war, uh, specifically in 2015 and 2016. And they've killed hundreds of Saudi coalition fighters with them. Um, also, Tachka use were uh, pretty controversial during the 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh um, war. Uh, apparently, Azerbaijan claimed that Armenia fired a bunch of Tachki U rockets at its territory, and then Armenia denied it, of course, calling it like, you know, disinformation to justify the use of force against them. So, you know, it's not the only time that someone's <laughs> used a Tachki U and blamed each other for it, right? And then, of course, uh, so, so with this missile, there's like, there's plausible deniability of, because there's so many of them and there's been so many modifications. There's, um, when you use it, there's like a level of plausible deniability if it, if it strikes and kills somebody. I mean, generally speaking for all of the, the events that we, that I outlined, you know, the, the party that used the rocket admits to using the rocket so there was no you know question about that but i guess what you're trying to get at is that during the ukraine conflict we've got two nations that both pretend that both field this same weapon and they're blowing up in places where they shouldn't uh and that raises some questions and then people point their fingers at each other so you know Kramertosk train station event <laughs> you know is the one that you're talking about and on the 24th of February, 
uh, Ukrainian for uh, before I get into that because I, I got an, another incident of this and 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 this was Ukraine actually using uh, the Tachki U against Russia and the, this was on February 24th. Uh, Ukrainian forces basically launched a missile uh, on the Russian Milarovo airbase uh, and they sent two Tachki U missiles over there. Um, and they were basically doing this in the early days of the war to prevent future airstrikes by the Russian Air Force. Uh, allegedly, they destroyed an Su-30SM jet, but according to the Russians, they intercepted it and nothing happened, right? Um, the same exact day, February 24th, a Tachka missile was fired by Russian forces and struck near a uh, hospital building in Voldehar in Ukraine, and that killed four civilians and it wounded 10. There was an Amnesty International investigation about that and that apparently proved that it wasn't being used for the military. So that event was particularly extra tragic. And at this point, there's been so much happening that I'm not even sure or remember if this was one of the incidents that Russia denied. So take this with a grain of salt about who did it. But what I can say is that a Tachki, you definitely hit the hospital. Um, so... On March 14th, so we're kind of going along the line for how it was used in this particular uh, conflict. On March 14th, Russia blamed Ukraine for launching a Tachki U missile, which wounded, uh, killed 23 and wounded 28 in Donetsk. Uh, evidently, it w hit a housing facility, and that house housing facility was supposedly used as a barracks for separatist forces. I also can't confirm that. Um, on March 24th, uh, a Russian landing ship called the Saratov, uh, which was docked in a port in Ukraine, caught fire mysteriously and sunk, and the ship was reportedly hit by a Tachki U missile, but again, not confirmed. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, we can talk about Krimertos now. <laughs> but before we get into that, you can kind of see, like, it's been used a lot, allegedly on both sides, right? They both have access to it. Uh, we'll get more into the specifics about who is particularly using them, but you know it's kind of a hot weapon right now. So if you want to know the name of a missile that's important in this particular one, it's probably the Tachka. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the uh, the Tachka and the Iskander. Yeah. There's a few others that are important are the too. Yeah. I mean, these are the two missiles that you see the most, um, the most references to. That's uh, right. But obviously, because of the 
um, I guess because of the notable civilian casualties, uh, the Tashka is like the number one that thing that we kind of see on the interwebs. Right. And, and, you know, as I pointed out, the Tashka has kind of a much bigger margin of error, right? So when they're being used, you know, it's possible that, you know, they're aimed at legitimate targets, but just end up hitting shit that they're not supposed to because they kind of suck, right? Um, so that leads me to Kramer Tosk. The basic story is that on April 8th, there was a railway station in Kramertarsk, which was hit by two Tachka U missiles. The attack killed 52 civilians, and it injured at least 87. Uh, this one's going to get super spicy, so I'm going to be very careful about how we talk about it. Um, I want to be clear from the start that to this day, we, it's May 4th. So in case something comes out tomorrow, <laughs> I don't want you guys yelling at me. To this day, we don't have definitive evidence that proves who launched this missile or importantly, why they did. There's a lot going around about it. Uh, if you want to look it up, Google it yourself, come to your own opinions. Not going to talk about that. I will talk about some of, some of the background about it. So the, the station was full of people that were looking to get on a train and evacuate. And no matter how you look at it, this was an absolutely horrible thing to do. And of course, the going arguments was that the Russians did it. Uh, the most heard arguments for this that I've seen so far are that, you know, Ukraine controlled that area. Why the hell would they bomb their own citizens that are evacuating? Uh, and also that the boosters, uh, the part that like, you know, propels the, the warhead, uh, that were recovered from the incident had, you know, some Russian script on it and it was painted on it and said like in Russian for the children, which made it particularly heinous. And of course, you know, to, to, to give the other side of the coin a little bit of airtime, Russians deny it, right? And they argue that they didn't have any planned missile strikes in the area on that day. Uh, they don't use that missile anymore, but the Ukrainians do. And I think that part is a little bit of a stretch because, as I pointed out earlier, you know, the Russians definitely have them and there are some evidence of them using them. I think they definitely didn't just throw all their missiles away. So there's, I'm questioning that a little bit. But the one stronger one is that the trajectory indicates that it might have been fired from Ukrainian con controlled territory. Now, this particular topic is so hotly debated and, and we've, you know, in our Slack channel, you know, for our Patreon members, we've even like gone in depth on different videos and pictures and evidence and things like that. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of information on this, uh, topic and a lot of disinformation too. So I, I caution anyone who's interested in looking into it to be careful about what you read and what you believe. Um, but I don't want to get into any conspiracies around it. All I'll say is that it looks, it doesn't look very good for Ukraine, but shit doesn't totally add up for it not being Russia or the LNR DPR, in my opinion, either. So I'm not going to assign any blame here because there's so much shit online about it that I'm not sure what's right. All I'm going to say is it was super fucked up. I do want to point out that there could be ways that we can find out who did it. Uh, there's a serial number. Everyone talks about this. It's, it's 
painted on the side. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Everyone yep. brings up everyone brings up the serial number. Serial number. Saying mm-hmm. that it was a Ukrainian serial number. I have no idea if that's like real or or if it's disinformation. I I've honestly haven't done my own investigation, right. so I, I'm not going to speak with authority on it, but that's just again what we're seeing on the interwebs, the serial number is Ukrainian. Serial number, right. Well, the thing about that is that it's just a serial number. I I had a conversation with one of our Patreon members like in depth about this, and we both agreed that, okay, the serial number is important, but none of us can use that information for in any meaningful way. The way that I describe it, it's like if you were, you know, if you saw some evidence of a hit and run and somehow you see a license plate number. Like you ever see those like fender benders, right? Where they, you know, ram into a car and, you know, out of a miracle, like the the imprint of their license plate is like on the person's fender, right? It's like, okay, cool. There's your evidence. It's a license plate number. But like regular people like you and me, a license plate number means jack shit. (laughs) Like we have no idea what the fuck that means, but it means something to someone, right? And... We're just not getting that information. So I want to caution anybody who's doing research on this. If you're seeing, you know, hey, the serial number means it's Ukrainian. Neither side, both Ukrainian and Russian, have ever provided any documentation about those particular rockets and who owns them. And they should have documentation about it. Evidently, I've read reports that say that these rockets have documentation, like little passports, which indicate their ownership and like where either that they've been in storage or that they've been deployed, et cetera, and that both sides should have some kind of documentation around it. And it seems to me like all you got to do is just like, show me the paperwork, right? Show the world the paperwork. But literally neither side has produced that documentation yet that I can find. No one's, no one's showing us this. So anyone who's saying that the serial number, it means it's Ukrainian, they're, they're misunderstood because no one's given that evidence. And if anyone's saying that the serial number means it's Russian, same argument. Nobody knows because no one's giving any information out. But just because they haven't given out the information doesn't mean we can't figure it out eventually. So we'll see. I think it, it, would, it would be funny if they were both holding back information because they both thought they did it. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, we right. did it. Like neither side knows for sure. And they're like, oh, no, I'm not, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> Yeah. Well, what makes me suspicious of it is the fact that the the uh, the missile was painted for mm-hmm. the children. Yeah, as in, cool. it reminds me. It reminds me of of uh, back after nine eleven when there was anthrax sent mailed mm-hmm. out, and it said uh, "Death to America" and "Death to Israel," and, right. and like I think it said "Praise Allah" as well. Right. And then it ended up. They ended up. You know, they linked it to Al Qaeda, but it wasn't. Al Qaeda was from a lab in the United States, right? So it it was just like obvious. It could be a red herring, right? Like that. that yeah, it was an obvious red herring because mm-hmm. um, that's what Al Qaeda would say, <laughs> right? Right. But that's going down like conspiracy land, and I don't want to go too far down that. Yeah. Let's um, yeah let's let's spare let's spare people. I mean, on, on that, but right. um, it's good it's good it's good to look into this stuff. <laughs> Okay, so another way that we could figure it out is to track the trajectory, right? So you're going to see a lot of evidence for Ukraine and for Russia 
uh, around the trajectory. So the, the Russians specifically are claiming that the trajectory of this rocket pins it as coming from inside Ukrainian-controlled territory. But I've also read reports uh, that claim the opposite, that uh, the, there is a possibility that was being launched from LNR or DPR territory in the south. Uh, and those guys definitely use Tachka use. Like they, if Russia doesn't use them, they definitely use them, right? Um, so uh, my point here is, I'm not a fucking mathematician or a physicist. I can't do that calculation by myself. And the likelihood is that neither can anyone that's listening to this podcast. Specifically, even if you are a mathematician or a physicist, like a physicist, because you lack the data, right? There's there's not a lot of data. There's not a lot of good reputable information about its flight path. But just because we don't have that data now doesn't mean it doesn't exist and doesn't mean that someone out there in the world can't figure it out. But I just think it's just unlikely to happen while the war rages on, right? No one's going to be like, yeah, yeah, let's get some, let's get some guys, some smart dudes in here and like (laughs) map the trajectory of this ballistic missile in the middle of a war. That's not going to happen. Danny, I think you're mistaken about this. I think that if you went on, if you logged into Twitter, (laughs) every single person who has a Twitter account is a um, mathematician. They have a PhD in mathematics and they've solved this. Well, you've proven me wrong, Every single Twitter account has solved this. I'm just saying, like, it's but so many unlikely. of them have contradicting answers. Right. Exactly. So I guess it's still up to her debate, but right. I'm sure they're all, they've all done their calculations. Right. They can, they can show their work. Right. Now, listen, there's definitely data somewhere. Right. Um, but I don't have it. You don't have it. Probably most people don't have it. There is, I think, uh, one more way where we can figure this out. And again, spoiler alert, we're not going to figure it out now. It's that Ukraine, the U.S., and Russia all have monitoring systems in the area that they use to track threats, right? Think about like the S-400 missile defense system, right? They all have like very complex radar systems that track missiles in the sky, and they do this all the time because they're trying to figure out if there are any threats that are inbound so that they can shoot them out of the sky. Same as Ukraine, and to a large extent, same as the U.S. That's how we're getting all this information about how many missile strikes there have been, right? So there's definitely data somewhere uh, that would corroborate the flight path of those rockets on that day. But unsurprisingly, no one's giving that information up. Like no one. No one's saying, hey, look, here's the data that we had from this radar on this day showing where it came from and where it landed. No one's doing it. And it's likely because that's like showing your hand. You know, we're in, a, we're in a current conflict right now and you don't want the enemy to know what you know or what you can see or what you can't see. So this is kind of like a uh, I can neither confirm or deny situation, right? And we probably won't know until until and unless this goes into like an international court or something where they, I don't know, can, can international courts subpoena this information? I have no idea, right? So... I mean, on this topic, my, my advice is for anyone who's interested in it, you know, who has an opinion on it, like you're totally welcome to your opinion based on the facts that you consume. But in my opinion, we're truly not going to know anytime soon. So let's just cool it on this particular topic for now. So what are you saying? What, what you're saying is go off your gut feeling. I'm saying think whatever you want to think. And back that word, gut feeling. 
yeah. with maximum veracity. <laughs> no. That's what he's saying. <laughs> Whatever gut not. feeling that you have, just go on with the go along with that and then double down on that gut feeling. <laughs> no. no matter what evidence is presented in the future. Definitely not. <laughs> that's my that's my strategy. Um Okay, let's 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 um before someone, you know, has a heart attack and starts, you know, yelling at this show. I can already feel the negative um, like reviews being typed as we speak. Yeah. You're totally wrong. <laughs> what gives you the goal? Um, Literally saying I don't know. <laughs> but I'm sure someone's gonna interpret that whole last fifteen minutes as I'm wrong. So yeah. We'll see. Um all right. Maybe we can talk about some other missile strikes, some other noteworthy ones. Yeah, let's talk about the warship that was shot. That was that the Russian warship that was sunk because that was a missile. Well, allegedly a missile strike, which I think is, I don't know if it's confirmed or not, but that's the almost the consensus um, between like Russian and and, and both Ukrainian yep. supporters that the Moskava was um, was um, you know hit with a missile and then. Mm-hmm. It survived the missile attack, but then it, I guess I've read that there was some type of mistake made when they were trying to haul it back to the port, but maybe, maybe I'm, I misread that, but, um, no, you're, you're mostly right there. I mean, this Moscow warship was the one that was famous a long time ago for, you know, the Ukrainian soldiers were like, Oh, go fuck yourself. Russian warship. Right. And that was in, you know, in middle of April, uh, a couple weeks ago. It was. You mean the story, the false story about that? Well, I mean the audio does exist of of them saying like Russian warship go fuck yourself. Well, I mean the snake, the Snake Island, the Snake Island story though was a bit um, exaggerated. Oh hell yeah! But that's not not my Western audience. I'm not arguing whether or not the events occurred as it did. All I'm saying is that there is that one part where he says go fuck yourself, which I found hilarious. Um. But yeah, that was the same warship that they were talking about, right? They were talking to the Moskva. And, you know, the sinking of the Moskva was a pretty big blow to Russia because, you know, that ship was its flagship in the region. And ships are super, you know, important strategically and also fucking expensive. Um, and if you ask Russia about this situation, it was an onboard explosion and a fire, and it definitely wasn't the Ukrainians, right? That's, that's their story, and they're sticking to it. Nobody really knows what happened to the sailors on board, but Russia said they all evacuated. So take them on their word if you want to. Um, But there were some U.S. confirmed reports of Ukraine using a pair of Neptune missiles to sink it. Um, So Neptune missiles are Ukrainian-built anti-ship missiles, and its design is based on the Soviet KH-35 anti-ship missile, but with like some improvements on range and electronics and shit like that. But that was a pretty noteworthy use of a missile, right? That allegedly sunk a flagship warship of Russian. So, interesting case study of the use of <laughs> missiles in this conflict. Did you um, did you see uh, a while back? I think I might have sent it in Slack that video of the NBC reporter that was interviewing. Um, that guy, Mal- Malcolm Nance. Oh God, that guy. <laughs> yeah. Did you see that oh, video though? That guy. 
Um, yeah, I saw some of it. Is that the one where he's like, oh, it's a 500-pound missile? <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> like, based off the sound. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was pretty cool. Off. I thought, it, like, you can think of whatever you want about him, but I thought that situation was pretty cool. The dude was basically talking about Ukraine to some reporter, and then suddenly a cruise missile goes over his head, and then he goes, like, all full military. I mean, he was in the military, so, you know, it makes sense. But... You know, he IDs the missile and he's like, oh, that's a caliber missile, right? And he's like judging based on the direction that they were ship launched. And I don't know, I thought it was pretty cool. He did this thing where he was counting the timing and like inferred a bunch of all, you know, like all sorts of things, like, you know, when another missile was going to go overhead. And he was pretty good at it, actually. So he was like, oh, one's coming. Give it a second. What was he saying? Stand by, <laughs> which I thought was incredibly like weird. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he was able to ID it as a caliber missile. And, you know, Russia's been using a lot of caliber missiles, uh, and they're also pretty deadly. Um, these are cruise missiles, right? So you were asking about that earlier. Uh, so we can talk a little bit about their differences. Uh, so they, they these caliber missiles are have a couple of variants. They have ship-launched ones, submarine-launched ones, air-launched ones, uh, and... They have variants that are for anti-ship, anti-submarine, and land attack use. And the missile can carry a warhead that's up to 500 kilograms of explosive or a nuclear warhead. They can do both. But what's so incredibly deadly about them is their speed and maneuverability. So they can do shit like high-angle defensive speed maneuvers, which is basically like missiles dodging shit. Uh, and... It's twice as heavy and almost four times as fast as an American Tomahawk cruise missile, which gives it like a huge kinetic potential. And it flies at two, Mach 2.9, which means that it can't really be intercepted by existing missile defense systems either. It's just too damn fast. So you were asking about what the differences are. You know, these cruise missiles are just much more capable, much more maneuverable and really fucking fast. That's it. Um, so Mach 2.9. Man. It's pretty damn fast. That's, that's fast. So I guess the – man, I don't know how like air defense systems work really. I know that they have to fire, you know, what they shoot, fire, goes what, like Mach 6, right? That's what like the – Yeah, but I mean – the, the interceptors are fast. It's just like when you, I don't want to get into too much like math. It's just really hard to, it's like trying to, you know, shoot a bullet out of the sky while it's moving, you know, except the bullet's yeah. not moving in a straight line. It could like fucking turn and shit, you know? So that makes it like extra hard to hit. So it's, it's a combination of the speed and the maneuverability that just makes them incredibly deadly. And they're very, very accurate too. So, you know, that they're, they make really great, you know, uh, weapons against you know medium-sized targets like like warships. You know, as is a really good example of what they're used for. Um, but interestingly, just today, literally May fourth, uh, Russia said they fired two of these caliber cruise missiles at Ukrainian targets from a submarine in the Black Sea. Um, the Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, 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 Shoigu. Shogu, Shogu, Shogoi, Shogoi, whatever. whatever. <laughs> uh, he took this opportunity basically to warn the world again that it's going to hit any shipments of NATO weapons to Ukraine. And I'll quote him. Uh, he said, 
the United States and its NATO allies are continuing to pump weapons into Ukraine. We view any transport of the North Atlantic Alliance arriving on the territory of the country with weapons or materials destined to the Ukrainian army as a target to be destroyed. So, they're really saying, we're going to... We're going to ruin your day if you send some weapons in. And uh, and they're making good on their promise, too, because it appears that Russia has taken to hit like something like six railway stations in the last day in Ukraine, uh, and in particular railway stations that are used by Ukraine to supply Ukrainian forces with NATO weapons. And basically they're trying to hit their power supplies, right, to like disable the, the trains, which is interesting. So I came up with a theory that, you know, there's really no evidence to support this. But again, going off your gut feeling and and, uh, and backing that with maximum veracity <laughs> is uh, what we're playing right here. So what I was thinking was that it's going to be very difficult to get a lot of these weapons from Poland to Ukrainian forces fighting in Donbass where the big battles is right now. Especially if they're breaking the railway stations to get them there yeah so you know we just signed a well we didn't sign it yet but it was passed in congress in the house biden will sign it 36 billion dollars 32 billion dollars in in, um military aid right i think a lot of well i think a lot of this is going it's just for the you know for like a thousand dollar hammers and stuff like that just total bullshit. Um, you know, it's more than Russia's. What's Russia's military budget? It's it's. Uh, I think combined with all the aid we gave them is more than Russia's uh, military budget. Sounds right. Sounds right to me. Now, I think a lot of these weapons are just kind of meant there to be uh, sponges. So. They come in, there's not really a chance that they're going to be able to get to the east in time, but the Russians are going to have to, they know they have to deal with them. So I'm thinking that maybe they're putting weapons in in places like Kiev and and western Ukraine to um, hopefully deplete Russia's stockpile of missiles. Honestly, dude, I think you have some, that theory has some legs. I really do. So they may may they may just be putting stuff from, in from Poland, um, in 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 targets that you know may not necessarily wouldn't normally be important for the war in the East, just so Russia eventually runs out of like Neptunes. Um, oh well, Russia doesn't have Neptunes. Those are those are Ukrainian. But I, I get what you're excuse saying. Excuse me, not yeah. Neptunes. Uh, run out run out of um, Iskanders you know, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, they're Iskanders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's entirely possible. Put a pin in that because I think I think that goes really well with you know this next point that I wanted to make. I, I really do. I truly do. Um, so something you know, we've been talking a lot about missiles and and you know how dangerous they are and and how widely they've been used. And a question comes out uh, up a lot about like you know if we if Russia has all these dangerous missiles, why don't they just like level Kiev or something like that and just end the war already? And, you know, it's that's a little naive, but I mean, I, I can understand where the positioning is coming from, right? Why why risk losing all of your, you know, soldiers and tanks and shit when you just 
basically end it immediately. And in the beginning of the war, it seemed like that that, that was the strategy, right? They used a, they launched a hundred of them in like a couple hours, right? So why not just keep that up? You well, know? they can't do that because there's not it's not predominantly Muslim, so they're not allowed to, <laughs> right? That's, That's how it works. You can you're a lot of you're a lot of carpet bomb Muslim cities. Hey, man, like I said before, Russia has launched more like cruise missile strikes than we did in Iraq in 2003. So technically, what you're saying is wrong. They've done more. And I'm and, saying like carpet bombing. Mm, well, they use cluster munitions, so I'm not going to go there though. The, the point, though, is the reason why they're not doing this is that there is so much potential for collateral damage. Um, remember CEB or the circular error probable? That's, that's like how they measure how accurate a missile is. Well, the more accurate missiles that Russia uses, like the Iskanders, I said this before, they have between five and seven you know, meters of, of wiggle room, right? That's like 16 to 22 feet worth of margin of error for you know, folks that, that don't do meters. Um, beca- because this war is mostly urban combat, it's like super easy to miss the tank on the street and hit the residential building next to it, right? Uh, and that's that's for the good missiles, right? Russia risks running out of like viable good missiles among a lot of other things. And Because I've just learned that apparently a good amount of the components that they use to make them are made in Ukraine. Specifically, Russia might be unable to restock uh, a specific cruise missile, the KH-55, because those parts are manufactured in Kharkiv, which kind of explains why they were so adamant about going after that city. Here's a quote that I found from a senior defense official uh, of the United States that... uh, he did a, pre, a briefing on April 29th. So he said, the preponderance of strikes still are in the JFO and Mariupol. And I would add that in Mariupol, what we're seeing, a predominance of the ordnance being dropped is dumb ordnance, not precision guided. And we think that speaks to the challenges that Russians are having with PGM replenishment. So... Translation, it looks like Russia is running low on the good stuff, uh, and it shows because of the inaccuracy of the stuff that they're currently using. Uh, Here's some more. So it says, some of the strikes in Kiev, we believe, were meant for for production capabilities. By the way, I'm reading this verbatim from what he's writing. If if it sounds weird, I'm just reading it. Um, Now, I know that there's reports that they hit residential areas. We have no reason to doubt that they did, but we don't believe at 100% certain that they meant to hit residential areas. In other words, they could have been misses. Okay, so a little bit of translation here and some context. In the first few days, we saw the shock and awe campaign from Russia where they used a lot of the good stuff, right? I mean, if you if you look at the first couple of days, they basically wiped out the entire Ukrainian Navy uh, and most of its air force in like two days, right? So they were able to use very high precision weapons during that period. But now it appears that they're either holding out on the good missiles or they're just straight up running low on them because while we're not seeing Russia let up on these missile strikes, there are reports of nearly a 60% failure rate on the strikes. Which brings me back to your idea, Henry, 
about NATO weapons being used as missile sponges. You know, I just read from a senior defense official at a public briefing saying that they think that the Russians are having challenges replenishing their good shit because they're using dumb bombs. It's entirely possible that they're just sending trucks and trucks full of, like, could be nothing, right? They, they don't know what's inside the trucks. Just to be, like, a target and make them use more bombs. This is me giving them credit, too. Yeah. So... I mean, it's either a complete boondoggle or there's some type of strategic importance of, of putting weapons in Western Ukraine that most likely won't be able to, re- to reach these guys. I mean, the guys fighting the war in Ukraine now are, are entrenched in bunkers in Donbass. Right. I don't know how they're, I don't know how you get weapons to them from the, from the West, um, Unless there, unless there is some way, but just high level, it seems very difficult when a lot of the logistics and a lot of internal infrastructure has been destroyed. So it leads me to believe if you know military planners are, you know, the U.S. is planning all this. Let's just get real. Um, I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches... April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give them some credit where some thinker is like, well, you know, if we just you know toss a bunch of uh, um, ammunitions in, in Western Ukraine, eventually the Russians are going to run out of their best missiles and it will it will defang them in the future so we can let's just say if there is a possible war that breaks out 
we know for with confidence that you know they don't have these missiles to take out our navy mm-hmm. type thing that's 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 what i'm that's so, what i kind of envision what their mindset is like a little diabolical if when there you consider is a, that they you know basically arming people you know and the likelihood is that if you come anywhere near this western you know weapons you're gonna die right so well because Russia, let's look let's look what, strike it let's look what we're talking about right here the u.s encouraged the population of iraq to rise up against saddam hussein in the 1990s and then they were like just kidding we didn't really actually mean it we weren't going to actually get your back to the shia population who rose up against saddam hussein and then saddam hussein um slaughtered tens and tens of thousands of them who rose up against them and they were like what the hell we thought you were you said you were going to get our back if we did this yeah so i have no doubt that um you know they don't really mind using ukrainians as um as meat shields or no not meat shields is not the right word using cannon them as fodder. meat sponge cannon, cannon fodder, fodder. Hey, and you know what? Follow the money, right? This might not even be a government thing. It just might be a military-industrial complex thing. More, I mean, that's that could be that's Occam's razor, right? I mean, the more it weapons could just they be send, like, the more weapons we can buy. They can buy. The United States will have to buy from these weapons contractors, right? And, did you see? Did you see um, Biden make his speech with with that at that uh, Lockheed Martin plant? No, I didn't see that. What did he say? He's making a speech with a bunch of missiles in the background in a Lockheed, uh, a Lockheed Martin plant. He said, Ukraine. That's what he said. Sounds Something along the lines of that. I'm Biden, and we got to help Ukraine. <laughs> They're dying out there, Putin. It's, um, I'm sure Lockheed Martin got a hard on from that too. They're like, "Yes, we're gonna make so much money." So I read, I read something where Lockheed Martin's like, "Cool down, we can't keep up with all this business. <laughs> we're making too much money; it hurts." <laughs> yeah, we don't want so many. We don't need that many vacation homes, right? I mean, I, I honestly think that what you're saying Palm has legs Beach from multiple dimensions. And Martha's Vineyard. So. We don't need a ski house and a beach house. <laughs> but maybe... We don't need two ski houses, ski lodges. <laughs> we don't need one in Killington, and we don't need one in Aspen. We'll just pick one ski location. Let's just do Aspen, and then we'll get our beach house in in. How many Palm mega Beach, yachts Florida. do I have to buy? <laughs> But maybe we'll do a week in uh, we'll do a week in um, in Napa Valley. Right. Every year we'll do a week in Napa Valley. We won't buy, but we found a we found a bed and breakfast that we like. Very expensive one. Um. But you know we'll we'll so we'll have we'll have three homes: our ski house, our beach house, our main family home, and then we'll we'll have our uh, bed and breakfast. We go to Napa. I think that's reasonable. Right. But if we have to keep making more missiles, I don't know what to do with this money. <laughs> but it's just so much money. What are you going to do? Give it to homeless people who need obvious care and, and mental support? No, we're not going to do that. Of course not. 
we'll just let them live in the subway and do shoot heroin. That will be the more responsible thing to do. Well, we're getting way um, off the rails here. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to talk about something interesting that I that I was reading about. Um, and it's it's the point that I made earlier in the show about how pulling out of the missile treaty, you know, may have been the straw that broke the Russian camel's back. So we've done a million different episodes on you know, this particular uh, invasion. And in particular, we've talked a lot about the Russian rationale for the invasion. Um, I'm not going to go into deep detail on it, but some of the high level points are like, you you know, they started with all this Ukrainian shelling on the Donbass, where a bunch of Russian speaking people live. They talk about, you know, aligning themselves with, you know, the LNR and the DNR uh, so that they can do this kind of preemptive collective mutual defense. Uh, they talk about denazification a lot, right? And they also talk about NATO expansion. And these are all reasons that Russia says that they had to do this special operation. And we've spoken a lot about how Russia views NATO expansion as an existential threat. And while that argument does have some valid points, it's it's super easy to develop the mindset that like sovereign nations should be able to decide for themselves how they conduct their foreign policy and who they align themselves with. And from that standpoint alone, I think, you know, one can make the argument that while Russia may have legitimate concerns, they have no business threatening violence on sovereign nations like Ukraine, simply because they want to align themselves with the West. Of course, there's always the argument that Ukraine isn't making this choice on their own and that they're being, you know, manipulated by the West into doing so. We don't have to necessarily go down that rabbit hole right now, but what I can say on this particular point is that even if there's truth that the West is influencing Ukraine's initial interest in aligning with NATO, Russia's reactive aggression against it fully cemented like that into existence. You know, if, if there's a Ukraine to speak of after this war is over, Russia's invasion alone will make it very hard to convince Ukrainian people that non-alignment with the West is in their best interest. But I want to come back to this existential threat, though. While I was researching missiles in particular in Ukraine, I came across some pretty interesting ideas about what exactly makes NATO expansion such a threat to Russia. It's, it's missiles, you know, specifically the kind of missiles that the U.S. and the former Soviet Union and afterwards Russia agreed not to build or deploy, you know, so... Why did we pull out of the INF? Why did Trump pull us out of the INF, the treaty that basically you know, cemented the end of the Cold War? So, so it's not it's not that they're worried about the six the the you know um, millions of soldiers uh, going over the the vast plains of of uh, Ukraine. They're not scared about the pans the German Panzer division. No. Um, you know, rolling over Ukraine. Um they're they're worried about just missiles being placed yeah, on their and, borders. And understandably because they're fucking dangerous, right? I mean, we just spent the last hour talking about them, right? So, I wanted to talk a little bit about pulling out of the INF and why that was probably like I mean, there's a lot of reasons why Russia wanted to do this operation, but this is definitely one of the bigger ones. Um, 
So in 2014, the Obama administration accused Russia of deploying a new type of missile, the Jesus 9M729 or SSC-8 missile. You're never going to remember that one. Don't worry about it. But the point, though, is that allegedly this type of missile uh, violated the INF Treaty because it had a range of over 500 kilometers. Now, the, the treaty itself said you can't build or deploy medium or intermediary range missiles that go between 500 kilometers and 2,500 kilometers, land-based ones specifically. So cut out, you know, you can still use them on ships and you can still use them in submarines. And I, I guess you can still use them in the air, but you know, you can't have ground-based launchers that can do this because the idea was that, you know, on the one side, the West and specifically Europe didn't want, you know, Russia or the former Soviet Union to create these missile systems that they can spin up really quickly. They're super hypermobile, right? They can drive all over the place, off-road, in the water, and move around really quickly and also be nuclear-armed, right? Because 500 to 2,500 kilometers is all of Europe, right, from Russia. And Russia had the same concern, right? They didn't want NATO to start creating a bunch of these hypermobile you know, potentially nuclear dangerous weapons that are rolling all around Europe that could strike Moscow very easily, right? So there was this mutual agreement that they all came to to say, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. And that was one of the, like, pinnacle points of the end of the Cold War because they were like, all right, great, we're, we're not going to do this. We're not going to threaten each other unnecessarily with these types of weapons. I still find it a little weird that they didn't exclude them from ships, <laughs> but, you know, whatever. They agreed. The point, though, is that the Obama administration accused Russia of deploying these types of weapons in 2014. And the Trump administration later used that as one of the reasons to rationalize getting out of the pact in 2019. So Russia refused, obviously, to admit that that missile violated the, the treaty, uh, but in October of 2020, they actually offered to say, hey, we're not going to deploy that missile west of the Urals, which was beyond the range that they can, you know, damage anywhere in Europe. But the condition was that the U.S. would chill out with its Aegis ashore missile system in Europe, which they were also fucking around with. So another point to this dilemma, do you remember the Iskander, right? The really good one? Yes, the one we were just talking about. Right. So that missile. Well, about an hour ago at this right. point. But yes, the first <laughs> that, missile we spoke about. Right. That missile the, was also deployed and it has a range of almost 500 kilometers, which is super, super close to breaking that INF treaty also. So we've got at least two missiles that the Russians are fielding that apparently are breaking the terms of this agreement. Also importantly, China was not a signatory to the INF Treaty and has deployed a shit ton of medium-range missiles. We've actually talked about their impact on the show. Uh, remember when we were talking about supercarriers in the Pacific? So basically, these missiles yeah. are a huge, huge threat. That was a while back. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Um, these missiles are a huge, huge threat to supercarriers. And you know, the, the fact that they're cheap and you can use them in swarms to overwhelm anti-missile defenses basically make carriers useless sitting ducks, right? Um, and then also, 
uh, hostile nations like Iran and North Korea have been focusing on this specific type of missile, right? These intermediary ballistic missiles. So all of that put together and Trump pulls us out of the INF and we're all fucked as a result, right? So, you know, I think that right when this happens, the idea of deploying these intermediate range missiles in Europe becomes a foregone conclusion. We immediately start developing SRBMs and MRBMs so that short range and medium range ballistic missiles. There's almost no conversation about like the strategic or geopolitical impacts of deploying them. The defense contractors are having a fucking heyday because now they get to build a new toy and basically Putin puts out this proposal, like I said before, and he says, hey, let's let's just do a moratorium on their deployment. And everyone ignores him. Now, it was kind of his fault in the first place that they, you know, he already seemed to be breaking the rules anyway, but you know, at least he offered to say, hey, let's let's make a truce on this. Let's not let's not go crazy, right? But literally no one listened to him. And, you know, is that his fault? Is that Russia's fault for creating those weapons that broke the treaty? Maybe. The point, though, is that this is one of those points that really stick it to Russia, and specifically Putin. He's sitting there going, hey, let's not kill each other. Let's agree to not put these missiles anywhere. And... For reasons that I stated before, the U.S., we just didn't give a shit. And we started making them. And so did they, right? And we started deploying them. They started deploying them. And now there's like a legit reason why NATO expansion is scary for Russia. Because if if, if Ukraine joins NATO, guess what types of missiles go into Ukraine? (laughs) Well, you know, my my um my theory and I honestly think that this is this is I'm confident. I make jokes saying that I just go with gut feeling, but I'm 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 confident with this theory. The primary reason that Russia invaded Ukraine was because military parity was was shrinking. There I mean military excuse me, I said it the wrong way. Ukraine was gaining military parity with Russia. And and how and why were they gaining? In, in terms of in terms in terms of missile technology, mm-hmm. and just in terms of, and just in terms of, I mean, look at what Ukraine's military did in 2022 compared to what they did in 2014 and 15. Right. Everybody slept like, look on at the Ukraine between, initially because were... in 2015, it, the, the Ukraine armed forces was a joke. Right. Um, you know, they 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 weren't very good, and then they got juiced up by nato over the next seven years and and they became a very good professional army and Mm -hmm. i think i think that russia saw that um its ability to be a hegemon in the region was shrinking and they said okay we need to do it and if we don't do it now then it's going to be a lot harder because like when you hear arguments from like the pro-Russian side, 
most of the criticism I don't think is like, oh no, how did you, you got us into this horrible quagmire. It's, it's more along the lines of either a, you're not being strong enough. Like you're not like when people, when Russians are criticizing Putin, it's like, you should have just did went in with a blunt hammer and, and, uh, carpet bombed you know brought out your bombers what is it the 295 bombers ones that they use the one that's like equivalent to the 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 b-52s the tus you should have just you should have just brought those out and carpet bombed them and the other criticism you'll hear is that you should have done this years ago (laughs) yeah um so it's I, I think that's I think that's the, the the one of the major factors and why they decided to do it. The other one is that um, and this is what Lyle Goldstein says is the the Russia military analyst. He says that um, Putin got freaked out by uh, the Belarus and Kazakhstan color revolutions. Mm. Yeah. And that was one of the big factors, which I think could, I think there's, there's, there's definitely, and you know, that was probably taken in their decision making, uh, that was probably taken in to his decision making. But I think the primary reason was, was, um, was just how exponentially or, or how, uh, fast the Ukrainian military went from, um, not, not really much to, like a really strong general staff to a trained professional army, and yep. they wanted to nip it in the butt. Yep. I mean that that's, that's all my true. that's my that's my theory, and, and that whenever I tell it to people, people are like, "Yeah, I think that's probably right." Yeah, but I definitely wouldn't discount this missile thing, man. Because I think yeah. the missile thing plays along into it, though. That's what mm-hmm. I'm saying. Yeah, I think the missile thing relates to it because that, I mean that's just a combination of of. Um, like, like what I'm trying to say is that there is a national security crisis for Russia. <laughs> like that, 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 that's what if if Mexico started. Become, what if Mexico just like got a juiced up army out of nowhere, and they had a president who like hated Americans, <laughs> or or if like you know they were just you know you could just you can play this game with russia with with mexico and china you know say with what if china started funding them and juiced up the mexican military and the mexican populist um or government was hostile towards america how long would that last so it's like um i know it's like this hypothetical that people don't you know you can't play that hypothetical it's russian talking points but when you use it, it's hard not to come to the conclusion that the United States wouldn't um, bomb Mexico City. So the most I mean, populated, the, the largest city in, in um, the Western Hemisphere. Right. The, the, the thing about that is that, you know, while, while your example holds legs and, you know, as a thought experiment makes sense, you know, it kind of puts it into perspective of like the why Russians did it. I think the, the piece that's missing for that from that for me is like the the circumstances that would make Mexico align itself with China and yeah. become hostile to Russia and and you know you have to I don't know, I, I want to be careful here pretty, pretty, you have to think about what you can who, you can imagine the culpability you can imagine you know? it I'm, 
I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're good. You're good. You can imagine it for I was sure. It's say- just like thinking about the culpability. Like, I don't think in a vacuum, Mexico wakes up one day and decides, fuck America, and I'm going to align with China, right? That's that's something that happens over decades, you know, of of mistreatment and, and bad communication and, and poor alignment with the United States. And it also has to do with influence of China, and it also has to do with, you know, money and politics and so many other factors, you know, it... You can you can use this as an example to put into context why Russia might do it, but what's missing in there for me is how did they get there? Yeah, well, it's 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 um it's a it's a century of a brutal history. Right, that's how they got there, mm-hmm. um, which we have talked about a lot in like the past two months. So yeah. catch our last episode. Yeah, on the origins of the Ukraine Russia crisis. If you want mm-hmm. to hear us expunge on on the uh, political cleavages between Russia and Ukraine, now, um, man, I just had a thought. Oh yeah, so I I do this a lot, man. I have an idea, I instantly forget it, and I don't think this is a good thing to be having when you're still relatively young. But um, to go back. McGregor was on Scott Horton's show, and McGregor said, Colonel Douglas McGregor, he said that he thinks that Russia is actually going to try to hurt the United States and Latin America now. Like, they're going to take a actively very hostile foreign policy against the U.S., and they're going to look for weak points in Latin America and try to turn Latin American countries against the United States. Um, seems plausible. I mean, they already had that. That's what he. That's what he said in Scott Hort. So, I mean, there's already evidence of that happening, anyway. So it doesn't seem like a. I mean that those those are the obvious. Idea. Those are, those are the obvious um, um, kind of weak point kind of weak points that outside of U.S. influence or not completely dominated by U.S. influence. Venezuela being number one, yeah, the number one uh, component. So let's look out for that over the next, I don't know, three years. Juan Guaido's president again. Did you hear about that? No, <laughs> I'm not surprised though. Juan Guaido's president. But when the U.S. wants to get something from Venezuela, they meet with Maduro. But they're like. Oh well, we recognize Juan Guaido again. <laughs> this dork, the biggest dork in the world. Um, well, we've got a couple more minutes here before we can take. Yeah, off and, and we, want, we wanted to talk about drones. Yeah, a few more things. So, before drones, I just wanted to talk about rockets for a bit, um, because this is kind of in the in the missile section. Missiles and rockets are pretty similar. Um, there's this. Uh, article that I was reading about from Brennan Devereaux, uh, who um, is in you know, he's in the army and uh, pretty smart dude on on artillery and shit. Um, and he wrote an ar- article about uh, how rocket artillery can keep Russia out of the Baltics. And he's one of the sources that he was talking about was the Rand Corporation's 2016 report on the Baltic scenario. And basically, the, the super old report was basically saying that that if russia wanted to that within 60 hours it could seize enough 
you know, terrain in the Baltics to basically make NATO cry. Uh, and that prediction is interesting when you juxtapose it against their current performance in Ukraine and how a lot of people were pretty much assuming the same for Ukraine, like, oh, this is going to be a quick one and done. You know, it'll be over very quickly. Yeah, but those are two, those, those are two different scenarios right there. Um, the Baltic states are tiny. Like they are tiny, tiny they're, but they are. They're, they're tiny. They're they're <laughs> tiny. They're in NATO. They're tiny. Well, we're we're assuming that obviously, if NATO decides to intervene, then yeah, this is a full scale, horrible, probably world ending. Maybe most likely fifty percent chance world ending. I would say flip a coin mm-hmm. type um, conflict going on. I think we're at ten percent. If NATO gets involved, we're at like fifty percent plus. Fifty percent right. being conservative of like how um, bad it would get. Well, check but, this out. Um, well, check this out. So, l- listen to what this guy is saying here. So, the Rand Corporation basically suggested that that we start putting um, U.S. made high mobility artillery rocket systems or MLRs, right, uh, in 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 the Baltics. Uh, and there's a very specific reason for this, um, and it's to be a response to a potential Russian invasion. So these rocket systems are basically trucks that shoot, you know, rockets. A, a lot of them, really, really far, and really, and relatively precisely as well. Um, Russia has been employing the use of MLRs uh, extensively in Ukraine, um, and they are fucking devastating. Um, arguably, MLRs are one of the most dangerous weapons, like ground weapons that you can have uh, because you can move them around really quickly and, you know, they they could just launch a crazy volley of, of, of these rockets to basically destroy anything. Um, and unlike a single cruise missile or even multiple cruise missiles, you can't necessarily, because they're shooting these large, like, salvos of hundreds of rockets at a time, you can't, like, shoot them all out of the sky. It's pretty hard, right? So you can basically overwhelm air defenses and the idea is that these uh, types of multiple launch rocket systems should be in a rotation where they're moving around in the Baltics a lot. And so you, they're not like in a specific area. So Russia's going to have a lot of trouble using its air power to like knock them out. Uh, there's also this idea where, you know, m- many of these are super lightweight platforms uh, that can be put onto an airplane, you know like like a C C130 or something like that and you know take off land in even rough terrain drop off the weapons have them fire a bunch of volleys and either get back on the plane and go somewhere else or like continue on to do something else elsewhere and the idea is that they could use these rockets to basically attack the shit out of these out of the Russians anti-aircraft systems like their S400s and they have a lot of them in in Kaliningrad and and St. Petersburg uh, which are basically, you know, Kaliningrad is, is and Saint Petersburg are, are are the defense against the Balt the NATO Baltics, right? Uh, and the presence of those uh, anti air uh, defense systems makes it super hard for NATO to defend the Baltics, right? Uh, and that's why the Rand Corporation was like, hey, in sixty you know sixty hours, they're gonna fall because we can't effectively move troops and weapons and and things like that into these tiny nations. So what this guy 
And just just to add, just to give you some context, the Baltic states are so small that each one, all of the Baltic states, each one of them, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, all of them have smaller populations than Kiev. Yep. Kiev has about three million. Well, it had around three million people. All these states have less than probably. I think the biggest one of them is Lithuania. They, I think they have like 2.5 million, and then the other ones have, I think, south of 2 million people. Mm-hmm. So these are small countries. Um, so, I, yeah, to your point, the logistic problem getting people bodies there basically would be exactly, very tough. Ex- exactly. And so the, the, the worry in the Baltics is that Russia can just roll over them. Right. And, and the fact that they have S-400s and S-500s and anti-air defenses means that we can't effectively send over a bunch of fighter jets to, you know, create air superiority over the Baltics to protect them from airstrikes. But if we're able to use, and this is the RAND uh, Corporation's suggestion, if we're able to use these rockets, I mean, each of these rockets or missiles can strike inside of Russia from anywhere in the Baltics. Because as you point out, the Baltics are pretty small. And they can do so with minimal warning. So each each rocket has, like, the smaller ones have 200-pound warheads that can go 70 kilometers, and the and they're precise. And they've got bigger ones that are tipped with 500-pound warheads that can go up to 300 kilometers. So basically, it's like, these things could be anywhere in that country, and they could hit anywhere, well, anywhere on the, the border of Russia, right, where they would be staging that attack. And basically neutralize the air threat which would give nato enough time to move you know more material and manpower over and create air superiority and we're already doing it we're, we're doing it a lot there are roughly 1100 to 1400 troops uh that are stationed in these four battle groups um which is a lot smaller than what the rand um corporation had had suggested but generally speaking we're we're doing it already, and if any, if the Ukraine crisis is any indication of the effectiveness of these multiple launch rocket systems, and they are, um, then this is really poking Russia in the eye and saying, like, oh well, good luck trying to take the Baltics, because you know this is a pretty good deterrent against you know a quick rollover on the Baltics, which I find really fascinating. Uh, and, and the interesting part about this is that those rockets don't break I, uh, the INF treaty at all because they're lower range. Well, let's just hope it doesn't come to that. Indeed. <laughs> all right, let's, last one. Let's 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 do this last one. So, sure. Lo, lo, I want to talk about these drones that everyone's talking about because they're hot. The the switchblade drones, right? <laughs> So these, these drones are, are called loitering munitions. The TLDR of this is that a loitering munition is a small drone that you shoot off into the sky from either a mortar tube. Um, they can be launched from vehicles or even airplanes at this point. Uh, and it's basically like a drone, a kamikaze drone. That's what, that's what they, they're calling them these days. And the reason why they call them that is because they kind of fly into the sky hang out for a couple minutes, find a target, and then drop on them. They're super tiny. They're super cheap, relatively speaking. Uh, and 
basically anyone can use them and you don't need to set up this big complicated system. Uh, the smaller ones can be set up in like five minutes, right? And they can be carried by regular infantry. So they're just as dangerous as like man pads or like javelin missiles, right? Because literally any troop can have them and they're pretty effective. But what they're the reason why they're a little bit more dangerous than these javelins or man pads is that they actually have the ability to do multiple things. So you can get a bird's eye view and do recon. So now you can see where the enemy is. They have a pretty good range. Uh, a lot of them can, you know, the, the switchblades can fly for like 30 minutes or something like that. You know, so that's a decent amount of time and they can travel several kilometers. So, you know, you can go well beyond line of sight to attack the enemy. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the larger ones can be tank busters. Uh, and we've seen the extreme use of javelins and, and how effective they are against, against tanks, um, the, the Russian tanks and, and armored fighting vehicles. And I'm sure you've seen plenty of videos of that. These things kind of step that up a notch because now we can extend that reach by a lot. And a lot of people are, are hyping these up as being like game changers for you know, the current Ukrainian conflict because the U.S. is set to send a bunch of them. So I think last I read, it was something like they agreed to sending 800 of them. Admittedly, the smaller ones, not the bigger ones. Um, but, you know, these, these switchblades are are pretty fascinating. I mean, what do you think about that? I just, I know that the Russians' um, troops are, are pretty scared of them. I mean, I think, you know, when I read about them, I don't think that this, is like, changes the war. I don't think you win the war by having a bunch of, like, tiny drones. I think it changes the calculation about how Russia engages with the Ukrainian forces, though, for sure. Um, and I think it, it escalates it by quite a lot because now they're not going to be willing to risk ground forces on anything they might be more inclined to just bomb the shit out of them but hey as i said before they might be running out of good bombs so that might be a problem because yeah. now we're talking about like just carpet bombing shit <laughs> you know um yeah it's um i was reading um, an article from uh, the the russia analyst gilbert doctoro and um he was saying that the Russians, the game plan now is just to have a long, long, grinding war, and um, he didn't really write about their their stockpile of missiles. But man, I I, I don't know what's going to happen at all, but it definitely seems like a possibility that you know they run out of their their missiles that can you know, hit targets within a, you know, within a, what, 10 foot radius. Yeah. Five to seven meters. Five, yeah. So I can't convert the metric system. It's too late. Less, right like now, 22 but, cent, 22 feet. <laughs> okay. 22, 22 feet. So, yeah. And they're going to, um, um, I mean, I lost my train of thought again. All right. No it, it's bad. Let me, let me just rephrase saying whatever it is, it's bad. He's a snake to my mongoose, or mongoose to my snake, whatever it is. It's bad. <laughs> um, it's from the, from Austin Powers. 
Uh, so last little bit on this, these like drones aren't new. Lots of people have been using them. Um, and specifically they gained some notoriety during the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, um, where, uh, basically Israeli provided drones. And these ones are particularly dangerous. These guys can loiter in the sky for nine hours, nine hours. If you fly around in the sky for nine hours and because they're pretty small, it's kind of hard to target them, hard to hit them. And, you know, they have pretty heavy payloads so they can definitely blow up, you know, tanks and things like that. Um, and Russia has them as well. Um, they have, uh, there's this one by a Russian manufacturer called the Zala Aero Group, and they designed uh, a, a drone called the Lancet. But this one is, has been getting a little bit of a mm, eyebrow raises because it's it uses like an autonomous system to locate and strike targets. So basically no human is piloting it. They just kind of launch it in the sky and it decides what to do on its own. Um, so there's obviously some morality issues uh, with that in particular, but it seems that, that this is the route that, you know, militaries are going because like I said, they, they are relatively inexpensive to be used by pretty much anyone. They are also can be very useful for, you know, shoot off a drone and fly out a couple kilometers and destroy a, you know, destroy an S-400 and get rid of the threat of, of you know, flying around or destroy a, a multiple launch rocket system and get rid of that problem, you know? Um, and it seems like Ukraine is building their own homegrown ones as well. Um, so this is, this is going to be an interesting thing to look at. And, and again, I want to underscore, I don't think it's going to change the war entirely, but it certainly will change the dynamic of how it is fought. And I think the way that it changes makes it much more deadly because Russia is not going to want to risk, take unnecessary risks because of the existence of these things. But to your earlier point, Henry, how the hell are they going to get them all? <laughs> you know, how are they going to move them to the front lines? That'll be a, yeah. that'll be a challenge. Yeah. Um, well, I'll close this by saying that I hope the war ends by the, our next episode, which most likely will not be the case. But I don't know. Maybe everyone will just run out of weapons. That will be the end. The M Night Shyamalan twist, right? Right. Um, all right. You want to end this thing? I'm. It's uh. It's getting late. Yeah, man. All right. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Bro History. Rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show. If you're listening on Apple or Spotify, and then if you want to further support us, you can join us on our Patreon and get access to our Slack account. Anything you want to add? No, man. That's all. All right. See you guys. Peace. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 